Good morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Our wireless mic went down this week, right before the service, so I'm, uh, I'm wired in here, which means my usual roaming can't go as far, so I may be tripping over things. Um, but welcome. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Uh, this is Resonate. It's a quirky church uh, for quirky, fun people, so I'm glad you're here. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Go and Stay, and the reason we're calling it Go and Stay uh, is because I believe that, that those are the fundamental choices and decisions that rule our life. Uh, if we can get a handle on what it means to go, when we should go, when we need to leave the party, uh, or if we can actually get our minds around when we need to stay, and oftentimes the stay is a whole lot harder than the go. Go has a certain like kind of sexiness to it. You can go, right, and, and your life moves on. You have incredible fun things that are happening, and even, you know, the, the flip side to go is maybe you're leaving something that isn't so great, and so you get to leave, and, and there's a renewal, there's a chapter, sort of like a season has been marked, right? But unfortunately, stay uh, is difficult because it's harder to mark those seasons. Even though those are happening and milestones are going on, it's not like you can point to it and say, oh, that was the graduation. That's when I packed everything in the van and we moved over here. That's not as strong. And so oftentimes we kind of mess stay up because we think that we're stuck. But there's a tremendous difference between stay and stuck. And there's a tremendous difference between go and leave as well. So we've been unpacking that. Uh, and for the last like three weeks, we've been exploring what go means specifically and what stay means. It was just like a little wrap up there. Um, but for the next two weeks, so not this week and then not next week because we're off next week, but the following week, this week I want to talk about community, uh, what it means to go and stay in community, what it means to make choices to discern if you are in the right community, to discern if I have the right friend group, to discern if this relationship that I have is actually a good thing or if I've stayed too long. Right? So we're going to talk about community this morning and then week off. I'm going to say that like 40 times in the sermon. Do not show up next week. <laughs> week off. And then when we come back, I'm going to talk about vocation. We're going to talk about career. We're going to talk about the practical stuff of like when is it time for me to shake things up in my job. Am I in an abusive place? Am I in a bad spot? Do I need to go? Or do I feel like I need to go? I want to go, but is God actually saying like, no, 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 no. I have you exactly where I need you right now, and you need to stay. You need to relax, and you need to stay. Um, so we'll talk about community this morning, and then vocation the next time, and then this series um, comes to an end. But there's lots of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. We have a strategy team meeting uh, in two weeks where we're going to kind of decide what the heck we're going to talk about for uh, the summer. So uh, really excited to get into that. Let me pray for us, um, and then we'll, yeah, we'll get into it. God, I'm, I'm so grateful to be here this morning. I'm so grateful for this, uh, this sacred space, a space in which we get to talk about the things that matter the most. So God, as we talk about community, which can be such a tricky thing, because I know that there are folks in this room that community has burned them, I know that there are people in this room that are struggling to captivate community, to, to, um, to garner that. Uh, and I just, I pray over all of our situations, whether joyous or, or difficult right now, would you move this morning? Would you center us in what it means to live in beautiful community? And would you teach us uh, what the church is really all about? Amen. Um, so let's talk a little bit about choices. Choices define your life, whether you like it or not. 
and it's very capable to make a bad choice. That, that is an option that you have. So if you make bad choices, that could result in a crazy weird trajectory for your life. If you make good choices, that could result in a crazy awesome trajectory for your life. But choices are what run us, and we make a whole lot of them. I said this a couple weeks ago, but I looked up how many, scientists have measured how many decisions you make in a day, both subconsciously and consciously, and it turns out that you make over 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000. Now, to put that in perspective, I also looked up how many times you breathe a day, and it turns out you only breathe 23,000 times a day. You are making more choices in your life than you are breathing. So I think we should spend a little bit more time figuring out how to make good choices, how to make wise decisions, and I think it's right in there. We need to stop making decisions, and we need to start discerning. And we talked big, there's a podcast like three weeks ago, we talked all about what it means to truly discern. But in this whole series, uh, we've been looking at this verse, we keep coming back to it, um, just because it has so much wisdom. But this is in Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah 6.16. Do we have that there, dude? Oh, oh font change. All right, um, this is what the Lord said. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. So I added that, but you said we will not walk in it this week for a very specific reason. So we'll come back to that. But first of all, just a little rundown here. Jeremiah is a prophet. Jeremiah is a guy that God is going to use in mighty ways to speak truth into his current situation. But at the very front end of Jeremiah, we have a problem. Because Jeremiah doesn't really believe that he can do it. Uh, in fact, his response to God is like, no, I'm too young. I'm too young to do this. And so God speaks into Jeremiah, and he uses that really famous verse that's, for I know the plans I have for you, uh, that we like to stick on bumper stickers, but that verse was actually just for Jeremiah. Anyway, um, <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, to prosper, for good. And then he sends him out. So Jeremiah goes with this incredible wisdom and knowledge that he's not going alone, that God is with him, that God is with him in all that he's going to have to do, even though it's scary, even though he's young. And so God gives him this wisdom, and this is about decision-making. Every time we're at a crossroads, we're making a choice. And a crossroads can be as simple as, should I take this way to work this morning or this way? We're constantly having to make choices and discern. But a major crossroads, a major thing is a life move. It's saying, oh my gosh, if I make this choice, everything is going to change. For good or for bad, everything's going to change, though. So how do I just pause? And so he gives this marvelous advice. This is what he says, stand at the crossroads. So don't run at the crossroads. Don't jitter at the crossroads. Don't cry at the crossroads. Just stand there. Just be still. And it does not give a time frame, which is beautiful news. It just says, stand there. Take as long as you want. Really soak in what this choice means. Stand at the crossroads. So our first thing in discernment and decision-making is just stay put, relax, take a breather. <laughs> Soak everything and look at it from every single angle. Uh, and then the next he says, ask for the ancient paths. And this is what I'm calling conventional wisdom. Uh, so ask for the ancient paths is like call your mom. It's the person that you trust, right, to go to for advice. Like ask for the people in your life that have gone through this stuff before. They've done these career changes. They've, they've, they've been in these relationships. Maybe they have a similar path that you have. Maybe they're a mentor. But these are the people that you call and say, like, hey, I kind of want to skip the line a little bit here and not really suffer. So could you help me out? Can you tell me what you did so maybe that can help? And that's wonderful. But the problem is everyone in here is an individual living their own individual lives. And, guys, your story is yours, and it's unique. 
And so unfortunately, there's only so far that another human being can speak into your life. Because they're not going to live your life exactly to a T. You're living your story, and you're the only one who's telling that and living that out. And so there's a moment you have to take in all of that conventional wisdom and say, okay, that's going to help me make a choice. But then after that, I need something else. I need some alternative wisdom. I need some deep wisdom. And the deep wisdom can be found all over the place, but it comes from the source. The deep wisdom comes from God, and there's all sorts of ways that that deep wisdom can get into you, but it comes from God. So you have to ask for the ancient past, ask for conventionalism, but then, more importantly, you need to ask where the good way is and walk in it. So this is the question we've been exploring this entire series, and we're going to unpack even more today, but what is good for you might not be what's good for someone else. And it also might not be what your, your parents, your mentors, those people in your life think might be good for you. There are going to be points in your life where you might have to make an alternative decision because you feel convicted about it. And conviction is this awesome word that like, we use when we throw down a gavel and stuff. But conviction in the spiritual sense is I'm convinced in my bones that this is the right thing to do, even if all the voices around me are saying, no, you should not do that. That's to ask what's good, to figure out literally what is good for you. And then the most important part is walk in it. So that means once you've made this choice, once you've discerned, once you've taken in all the wisdom, then you actually physically have to take action. <laughs> I think a lot of us get stuck right before the walk part. So we'll go through all, we'll, and you know these people. These are the people that are constantly constantly seeking advice <laughs> at all angles. And maybe it's like the conversation that just keeps everything you talk to them about somehow comes around to that job promotion or that relationship that they're in or something like that. It's like they can talk of nothing else and they constantly try and get advice. And at a certain point, you just want to be like, shake them and go like, you have to do something. <laughs> you have to act. You, you've read every blog on this. You need to go, right? You need to walk in it. I think all too often, we make a choice internally but there's no external action. So what I mean by that is you've already internally made this choice. I've got to leave this blank. I've got to go from blank. I've got to stay in blank. But then you don't have any external action. And without external action, you have not really made a choice. No one knows that you've made a choice unless you choose to walk in it. It's almost like you're, you're, you've lit, quietly lit a little match and said, yes, I've taken the first baby step. And you're hovering over like a pile of hay soaked in gasoline. And all you have to do is drop that match and then boom, go. Your, your fire is going. But all too often we just stand there holding that match and all that's going to get you are burned fingers. To choose something internally and to not act on it is to burn out. It's going to wear away at you. So we need action. And we need action in community. We need action to discern, is this the right place for me? We need action in all aspects of our lives, but especially, guys, if, if you feel in your heart that you've made a choice to believe something different, to move forward in your faith, any of that stuff, but you don't take action, then you're just going to get burned out. And I see this in faith communities all the time. There's a stagnant kind of feeling. Like, ooh, we're not, we're not progressing our hearts, right? We're going through the motions. But I, I feel the same way about God that I did 10 years ago. And if you feel the same way that you do about God 10 years ago, you should really take a stronger look around, right? 
I don't look like I did 10 years ago. I had hair 10 years ago. It was a beautiful time. <laughs> 10 years ago, you change. People change. People evolve. And your faith should be evolving, too. It's not scary. To, well, it's scary, but it's not bad to change. And you should, be, you should be taking in a grander story of God. I think if there's one mission in my life, it's I want to tell people about a larger story of God in 2019. And that changes every year because the next year I go 2020. I don't want to tell the larger story of God in 1953, which unfortunately a lot of churches are doing. And I don't want to tell the grander story of God in 1993 or just 10 years ago, right? There's an ever-evolving practice to how we encounter God, and we should be moving and we should be growing. Um, action matters because it determines where you're going to live your life and how you're going to live your life. So if you don't take action, you're going to be stuck in the same place. And that is not stay, right? Stay is a beautiful thing. Stay is like get breathe new life into where you already are. But to not take action is to be stuck. And that just means you're going to be stagnant, burning out. It defines not only like how you're going to live, but where you're going to live and where you're going to live. And I don't mean this like in a geographical sense, not necessarily. What I'm talking about is what space are you going to be present in, right? Where are you going to be present? Because presence is everything. Presence actually speaks louder uh, than your words does. Where you are present is your vote. Where you're present is, is what you're actually all about. And everyone knows this. Your butt in the seat is presence enough, and that is what people are after. Chelsea and I have been trying to get a new car this week. I explained what happened to our car last week. Uh, but we were trying to get a new car this week, and I have been on the phone with, like, dealerships and stuff. It's a, it's a hellhole. Anyway, you, you have to talk to these people, and you, then you go, but the main thing they always want is they're like, hey, uh, we need you to come in. And that's not what I want to do because I hate car dealerships and just want to get like an accurate sort of thing before I get in there. But they won't talk to you unless your butt is in the seat because they know, just like all good advertising knows, just like all good companies know, that if you are present, then they can pull something from you because you voted for that. When I walk into pavilions, when I'm present in pavilions instead of Ralph's, I voted for pavilions, <laughs> right? When I, when I choose to stay in my marriage, Thank God. When I choose to stay, then that's my vote. I'm voting for that. I'm saying I care about this because I am present there. Your presence matters. And the most beautiful thing about presence, especially when it comes to community, presence where you feel like you belong, when you are present somewhere and you truly feel like you belong. And belong is important. Belong is not just like country club, social network, we belong at this place. What it means is that when you're gone, you are missed. When you're gone, people notice and they say, oh, where is this person? Their presence is missing in this voice. So your presence that finds a home that is and it belongs, that is what good community is all about. Your presence belonging somewhere. Because at the core, each and every one of us wants to belong to something bigger than ourselves to something way grander. And that's a beautiful thing. That's like at your very, very base level. The human dilemma and longing is all about, I want to be part of something grander than just myself. I want my presence to fit into something and be useful in something so that we can accomplish bigger and grander things. And that's an amazing gift that we have as human beings. And it's also a very dangerous gift <laughs> that happens to human beings. This is how mob mentality happens, right? When, when you're in a crowd, something happens, and all of a sudden you find yourself looting a television store, and you don't know why, and riots are going on, right? They, this same thing that is so beautiful 
that, that can help change the face of the world can also get you involved in communities that are not the right thing, right? Can move you into spaces that are not a good thing. It has that same power. So what we have to learn to do uh, is to not only just be present in the community, but discern, am I in the right community for the right reasons, right? If you are looking for friendship or you're looking for something, really get to the core. Say, what's good here? What is the mission here? Because if not, you may find yourself in friendships and relationships and communities for completely the wrong reasons. Here's wrong reason number one, amenity-based relationships. Here's what I mean by that. That's the person in your life that you're like, yeah, Jerry is kind of a jerk, but if I hold on, there's that one trip to Mexico. Oh, and to that, so I will put up with their annoying personality for a little bit longer, right? That's amenity-based. That happens in communities too, right? I will go so-and-so because, hey, I know that maybe their ethical practices aren't that great, but their pool is awesome, right? Like, we, we sacrifice things due to amenities. You could go on a whole cynical thing on church, but I'll, I'll wait for later. I'm going to use scripture for that. But basically what that means is, like, if, if we're showing up to community for the wrong reasons, we're not really going to belong there. We're just going to be, like, hanging on for dear life, um, just for some sparkly things. And that's not what God wants for you in community. God wants you to experience genuine, loving community. Something that, that you're designed to be a part of something bigger. Um, your, your most meaning is going to come out of life when, when you are in meaningful relationships. Not amenity-based relationships, not, not sterile relationships, but if you really are searching for meaning in life, which is the fundamental thing, that we're all looking for, not joy, not laughter, not happiness, but meaning, then you need to be in meaningful relationships, meaningful community. And to do that, you need to be clear on what a community stands for. So in any relationship, in any kind of uh, community that you're going to be a part of, including your church, here's the m number one thing you need to know before you walk into it. Be really, really clear on its mission. Its mission. What is your mission, right? Because a lot of times you'll get so far in a community and then you'll really kind of figure out, you'll get invested, you'll get in deep, you're in this relationship, and then something takes a weird turn and you go like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. This is, this is not, I, this isn't on mission from what I thought. Uh, but unfortunately, we, you weren't able to discern and actually be clear before you walk in. So be clear on the mission. Um, two Christmases ago, my, uh, my little brother got one of those, um, do you remember like the BB-8s that were controlled by your iPhone? This is, maybe it's just so nerdy that it's just me. But anyway, it's, it's a robot from Star Wars, and uh, it, it moves around a little ball, and you can control it, and it's fascinating and hilarious and awesome. Uh, and my brother takes it out of the box, and he's, he's rolling it around, and my little cousin comes in the door and just kind of like stares at it, like very, very afraid. Uh, and Brennan goes like, what's wrong? And he's like, I don't trust that machine. <laughs> and, and he goes, why? And he said the funniest thing I've ever heard. Uh, he goes, what's its mission? <laughs> like to this little robot that's rolling around. But like that's the core question, right? Like what is its mission? Once we understand the mission of something, then we can feel comfortable fully jumping in and fully being on board. But we have to understand what a mission is, right? Because a mission exists so that we can be our own beautiful little personalities and have all your quirks and have all your awesomeness and be completely you, but you're a part of something that's moving in a trajectory that you want to be moving in and that your voice, your presence, inserted within that mission, causes change to actually happen. We call that unity over uniformity, right? That you can be your person, your diverse, unique, beautiful human being, but a part of something larger than your, 
yourself. And if it's on mission, that's truly going to change things. The Quakers, who are not, they're more than an oatmeal brand, the Quakers, uh, the circle of friends, have a beautiful uh, process in their community. Um, they call it a clearness committee, which at first sounds like Scientology, but it's not Scientology. Basically, it just means like when they need to discern something, when they need to make a decision as a community, they will come together uh, and they'll assign like uh, some of the elders and some of the younger people. They get a wide swath of, of intellect and personality and they put them all in a room and they basically say like, okay, this clearness committee, we need clearness, clarity on this one issue. And so we're gonna keep you in this room, not like lock and key, but like you, you stay in this room, like almost like a jury, and they pray together, and they discern together, and then when they come to a choice, they call that choice unity. And basically what that means is not everyone around that table is going to agree, it's just a majority vote. Like I think we should move in this direction, or I think we need to include these people, or I think we need to do this, or I think we need to do this with our money, all that kind of stuff. It's not that everyone around the table goes, yeah, 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 we're unanimous, unanimously into this. It's actually that there may be differences of opinion at that table, but even if you have a differing opinion, you choose unity. You say, okay, I'm gonna still be a part of this. Unity is not uniformity. It's saying like, no, I will yield to the higher authority, but I will still be me. I'll still be exactly who I am. And, and that is really difficult in 2019. Because if we have a differing opinion from anyone else, then we somehow think we can no longer be in community with them. This happens all the time. The one exception to this is the Thanksgiving table, and most people are miserable around it. Right? So like, you, you have family members that you disagree with, and you're stuck with them. That's family, right? But we tend to, if we're in a relationship with someone, or if we're feeling out, maybe we might be friends, and we don't align on the same kind of core beliefs and stuff like that, we just go like, well, sorry, you cannot be in my life any longer. And I get it. If they've got some really, really wacky ideas, like, oh, on the weekends, I kill people. Don't go near them. But if it's not that big, if it's not life or death, you can still be in loving relationship with someone that does not agree with you. And this country needs to hear that so badly right now. You can still love people that don't agree with you. And it's that kind of relationship. It's where you actually sit down at the table with the people that you don't agree with. When you choose to actually have conversations and interact, that things will actually change. But that takes us being present at tables that we might not feel completely comfortable with. I talk about the table all the time, but quick table rant. In the ancient society that Jesus lived in, if you sat down at a table with someone, you belonged to that person. It's the same idea of belonging. And it was a bond that was basically like if you sat at a family's table as a guest, you at that table are a part of their family now. So much so that if a person ran in to try and attack your guests, you as the host would be honor-bound, even if you, it meant giving up your own life to protect that person. That's why Jesus sits at so many tables, and he disrupts so much at the table. This is where he says some of his wildest statements, because he understands, I'm in the safety net of this table right here, and I can say what I want, because I know that you have to treat me like family. That we still have to treat each other with love. And he would sit with like the tax collectors and the poor and all of like the people on the left, the liberal people in the room are like, yeah, look, look, he's going over there. He's sitting with them. And then like the very next chapter, he's sitting with the Pharisees and the high priests and all the people on the right are like, yeah. And the people on the left are like, wait, 
You're supposed to be with us. But the problem is, Jesus doesn't live in one camp. He doesn't live on one side of the aisle or the other. He's constantly disrupting both. He's critiquing both worlds, right? But the way that he critiques is that he lovingly sits in their presence. The Pharisees were some of the, like, Jesus' biggest opponents. And Jesus constantly treats them with dignity, respect, and love. He yells at them a few times, but, I mean, that's family, right? So, like, they, they, they're always interacting with Jesus, and Jesus is going, like, oh, guys, like, I know you don't get it yet, but here, I'm, I'm going to try and help you understand this. And what's amazing about the Pharisees, they get such a bad rap in our sort of culture, but what's incredible about the Pharisees is when the temples destroy, like, Rome just comes through and ransacks the temple, kills just hundreds and thousands of people that are inside the temple and all around it. They basically just burn the thing to the ground. And when they do, and the temple structure, which was this, the whole center of religious identity there, goes away, it's actually the Pharisees that say, hey, I think that we can do this outside of the temple system. I think that we can actually form small communities, and they called them synagogues, and they became the rabbis, and they actually became the first mystics, even before the Christians got to that, and then they formed these communities, and that's what we have in modern Judaism today. So these guys eventually turn around and start looking a whole lot like Jesus, (laughs) even though at that time, they just weren't ready to do it. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, like, you're done, forget you. He says, let's have dinner together. Let's hang out. Let's be in community together. And that doesn't mean I have to like everything about you. That just means we need to sit at the table to figure this stuff out. It's about unity. When we can be unified, we can be incredibly dangerous. People know that. That's why they want to stop union, stop all that stuff. Because when people get together and they have a common mission, stuff can get done. I want to give you one example. It involves cheese sauce and this frightening creature here. So... This is Kenny the kangaroo. Uh, He's the mascot of Kennywood Park in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania doesn't blip on the radar screen all that much, uh, but this week, so I I love Twitter. It's a dangerous place, but I absolutely love it because I've curated my feed. The most beautiful thing in the world is that you have an unfollow button. Please know that. You don't have to be in social community with people. (laughs) You could just be at a table with them. But anyway, uh, I've curated my Twitter as such that these things begin to pop up and trend because that's the algorithm knows, like, this is what I'm going to click on. so anyway, um, this is in, in Ken, Kennywood Park, uh, they have this beautiful place called the Potato Shack. And it's world famous apparently in Pittsburgh. I did deep dive on research on this. Um, we'll get to scripture in a minute. But uh, deep dive on research on this. There's a place in, inside Kennywood Park, which is an amusement park, um, kind of like a really scary, like the rides might break down looking amusement park. And I mean, this is the mascot, so you should be re- very afraid when you walk in. Uh, but there's a place called the Potato Shack. And the Potato Shack has this beautiful dish that is just fries and cheese sauce. Fries and cheese sauce. And in Pittsburgh, they love it. Like, I, I don't know if that would fly um, in Los Angeles, but in Pittsburgh, they absolutely love it. Um, but in a, in a very dark move, the corporate minds behind Kennywood Park decided this year that they would make a different sauce or go with a cheaper competitor for this beloved cheese sauce. And it did not take long until Pittsburghians noticed that this cheese sauce changed and it caused a social eruption. They were trending on CNN because almost the entire city of Pittsburgh was tweeting about cheese sauce. And I have a couple of those tweets here. Here's uh, KDKA, say it ain't so. Hashtag Pittsburgh social media goes crazy after visitors claim Kennywood has changed the cheese on their potato patch fries. Next slide, please. 
Oh, this is Maria Cohen. Um, I, I did a little deep dive into her too. She's just a mother of three, uh, stay at home. Um, but there are some traditions you should not mess with and cheese for potato patch fries is one of them. It's bad enough that the quality of the majority of the food in the park has declined, but has, uh, has been changed. But really, potato patch? A long-standing time-honored tradition? You just lost a family of season pass holders. So glad we waited to purchase. This is over cheese sauce. Next slide, please. Oh, they just get better. This guy was fascinating. So I don't know what a yinstigation is, but uh, on the Kennywood potato patch cheese, what is happening? Mikey took it upon himself to get in touch with the mayor of Pittsburgh to declare this a citywide emergency. That made local news. Mikey made local news. And then right after this, Kennywood Park tweeted this. Consider the investigation closed. Kennywood's potato patch will revert back to its traditional cheese sauce. Thank you for your feedback and passion. We wouldn't be here without it. Victory justice is served to the city of Pittsburgh. Are we beginning to see how awesome this unity thing can be? <laughs> right? Like, take Maria, mother of three. Is cheese sauce her life mission? <laughs> no. But she shows up and lends her voice, and here's a really important thing, lends her presence to an issue, and because enough people were present in that issue, something changed. A lot of times, you don't need to give all of your presence to something, but lending your presence can be amazingly helpful. Just saying, hey, I will show up will be amazingly helpful especially when something is off mission. And in Christianity, that mission is extremely unique. There's this amazing uh, old rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, uh, and Hillel was the, actually Paul's teacher. So most of the New Testament uh, are letters from Paul, epistles, and those letters were written by Paul, who was a student of this fabulous rabbi named Hillel. Paul would have learned all of his Jewish identity from this teacher, and this was a huge camp. Like Hillel had thousands of followers. Uh, but it was a unique voice. And Hillel, like Jesus, would get like, kind of disrupted all the time by people trying to prove him wrong. And there's this really famous story of one uh, person, and it seems like Jesus may have heard this story, one person coming up to Hillel with a challenge. He said, if you can tell me your mission, what all of Torah is about while standing on one foot, I will believe in everything you have to say. And so Hillel very graciously puts one foot up, stands on one foot, and says, love your neighbor as yourself. All else of Torah is commentary. Now go learn it. And the man went and he learned. And then Jesus takes it a step further when he's asked, what's your mission? Or what are the most important commandments? He says, not only love your neighbor as yourself. He also says, love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But then he takes it a step further, which no one had done before. Love your neighbor itself is known as the golden rule. It can be found in every major religion to some effect. Christianity is the only one, and Jesus was the first person to ever say, love your enemy as yourself. Love your enemy. He says, not even just another person, not a neighbor, not someone you agree with, but your enemy. That's the kind of love, and that is our mission. Our mission is to have that sort of radical love. And what does that love look like? It looks an awful lot like every single wedding you've ever been to in 1 Corinthians 12, right? The love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it's not jealous, it does not boast. Paul just goes through a litany of descriptions, adjectives about love 
And when we get to the end of that glorious verse, it really looks like love is something that can weather any storm. And this is the kind of resilient love that nothing can knock down. And yet, we don't always love like that. And I'm talking to us Christians. We don't always love like that. That kind of love should cause radical, radical unity. And yet we are so broken apart. Did you know that there are 33,000 different Protestant denominations? And that's just in North America. 33,000. That's where the Catholics have us way beat. They've just got the one, right? But like, we are so divided. So divided. And all of those different 33,000 denominations are divided because they think that that love is defined as something different. They think love looks this way, love looks that way, love looks this way. The the truth is love is all-encompassing, and you can't define it, you can't pin it down, and you can't put a name on it. In our tradition, God is love. So what's fascinating here is that verse that's so famous and it's read at almost every single wedding, uh, it was never meant to be read in the context of personal love. That's really important. It was never supposed to be goopy, like, romantic love. That verse, when Paul is writing just a little bit earlier in this, he starts talking about this thing called the body of Christ, and he starts talking to a church about how they need to come together, and then when he defines that love, he's talking about the type of love that he wants to see in churches, in communities. So probably the most famous verse and the best verse we have, the most accurate description of love we have, is aimed at you guys, is aimed at community like this. And yet we get divided on all sorts of stuff. The fastest growing churches in the United States today are charismatic leaning churches uh, with very loud bands. And I will tell you why. Because if you come into a space with a very loud band, you can't hear your neighbors sing. And sometimes that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but guys, if you don't get the nitty-gritty here, if you can't hear each other sing, there's an enormous chance that you can't hear each other. That we can turn the lights down low so that we don't have to look at each other. We turned the church, which should be a communal act, into an individual experience. And that was never what it was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about love. No matter how big or small we get, I always want this to be a community where we can hear each other sing, where we deal with each other. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite people, uh, he just passed away recently. He wrote the message version of the Bible, just this like giant in the Christian world. And he would tell people who were leaving his church, uh, uh, they would ask him, well, where should I, how, can I sh- how should I find a new church? And he said, find the closest one to you. <laughs> and, then, and then he said, and then find the smallest one. <laughs> And I really wish Eugene Peterson's advice would be taken. Anyway, then, then find that community because he said, because then you actually have to deal with people. Then you actually have to live in community with people to have that there. And so I rewrote, I wrote a poem based on that famous love, uh, this is going to be fun, passage. Um, just sort of riffing on it uh, because I think that the whole idea of the church in this has been kind of washed away. Uh, and so I thought, how cool would it be, channeling Eugene, Eugene Peterson, to, uh, to just write a little poem that follows that First Corinthians, um, but, d- but twists it in, in just a different sort of way. Uh, and it was more of a prayer for me. So it just says, uh, if I can show people what, God, what this God stuff is through songs, dance, and a $300,000 sound system, but I don't have love, I'm just making noise. 
If I can point out what's right and wrong and have the strongest belief in God, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I volunteer, serve, sacrifice, hand out meals to those experience homelessness in our community so that I can feel good about my life, there's no point without love. Love is patient, love is kind, it isn't jealous, it doesn't put up billboards, it isn't arrogant, isn't rude, doesn't seek its own advantage, it isn't irritable, it doesn't keep a record of complaints, it is happy with injustice, but happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As far as dogmas and creeds, those will be brought to an end. As far as emotional worship services, those will stop. As for genius commentary and incredible preaching, (laughs) as well as our intellectual pride, it ends too. We do the best we can. When perfect love shows up, those things won't matter anymore. The same way that what we worried about when we were 10 isn't the same as what we worry about at 40. Perspective shift and love changes everything. Love is the journey of life and it invites us to follow to uncover more and more of what love truly is. So guys, in your relationships, in your communities, in your churches, in everything, if where you are at is not helping you uncover more about what love is, you need to go. And then if your community is doing that for you, you need to stay. And I don't just mean stay. I mean, like, get involved. Sir, grow, breathe new life into where you are. But always understand that it comes back to love. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm so grateful just for, um, for community, for the relationships in our lives, for the people that, uh, that we have that breathe life into us, um, that carry us, that that, that celebrate with us. I just am so thankful that we're not called to do this alone. I pray um, just over our communion experience, over our worship in this last song, that you would just move in crazy ways. Amen.